American Notes, Chapter 17. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter 17. Slavery. The upholders of slavery in America, of the atrocities of which system I shall not write one word for which I have not had ample proof and warrant, may be divided into three great classes. The first are those more moderate and rational owners of human cattle, who have come into the possession of them as so many coins in their trading capital, but who admit the frightful nature of the institution in the abstract, and perceive the dangers to society with which it is fraught, dangers which, however distant they may be, or howsoever tardy in their coming on, are as certain to fall upon its guilty head as is the day of judgment. The second consists of all those owners, breeders, users, buyers, and sellers of slaves, who will, until the bloody chapter has a bloody end, own, breed, use, buy, and sell them at all hazards, who doggedly deny the horrors of the system in the teeth of such a mass of evidence as never was brought to bear on any other subject, and to which the experience of every day contributes its immense amount, who would at this or any other moment gladly involve America in a war, civil or foreign, provided that it had for its sole end and object the assertion of their right to perpetuate slavery, and to whip and work and torture slaves unquestioned by any human authority, and unassailed by any human power, who, when they speak of freedom, mean the freedom to oppress their kind, and to be savage, merciless, and cruel, and of whom every man on his own ground in Republican America is a most exacting and a sterner and a less responsible despot than the Caliph Horain Arashad in his angry robe of scarlet. The third, and not the least numerous or influential, is composed of all that delicate gentility which cannot bear a superior and cannot brook an equal of that class whose Republicanism means, I will not tolerate a man above me, and of those below none must approach too near, whose pride, in a land where voluntary servitude is shunned as a disgrace, must be ministered to by slaves, and whose inalienable rights can only have their growth in negro wrongs. It has been sometimes urged, in the unavailing efforts which have been made to advance the cause of human freedom in the Republic of America, strange cause for history to treat of, sufficient regard has not been had to the existence of the first class of persons, and it has been contended that they are hardly used in being confounded with the second. This is no doubt the case. Noble instances of pecuniary and personal sacrifice have already had their growth among them, and it is much to be regretted that the gulf between them and the advocates of emancipation should have been widened and deepened by any means, the rather as they are beyond dispute among these slave-owners, many kind masters who are tender in the exercise of their unnatural power. Still, it is to be feared that this injustice is inseparable from the state of things with which humanity and truth are called upon to deal. Slavery is not a whit the more endurable because some hearts are to be found which can partially resist its hardening influences, nor can the indignant tide of honest wrath stand still, because in its onward course it overwhelms a few who are comparatively innocent among a host of guilty. The ground most commonly taken by these better men among the advocates of slavery is this. It is a bad system, and for myself I would willingly get rid of it, if I could most willingly. But it is not so bad as you in England take it to be. You are deceived by the representations of the emancipationists. The greater part of my slaves are much attached to me. 
"'You will say that I do not allow them to be severely treated, but I will put it to you whether you believe that it can be a general practice to treat them inhumanely, when it would impair their value, and would be obviously against the interests of their masters.' Is it in the interest of any man to steal, to game, to waste his health and mental faculties by drunkenness, to lie, forswear himself, indulge hatred, seek desperate revenge, or do murder? No. All these are roads to ruin. And why, then, do men tread them? Because such inclinations are among the vicious qualities of mankind. Blot out ye friends of slavery from the catalogue of human passions, brutal lust, cruelty, and the abuse of irresponsible power, of all earthly temptations the most difficult to be resisted. And when ye have done so, and not before, we will inquire whether it be in the interest of a master to lash and maim the slaves, over whose lives and limbs he has an absolute control. But again, this class, together with that last one I have named, the miserable aristocracy spawned of a false republic, lift up their voices and exclaim, Public opinion is all sufficient to prevent such cruelty as you denounce. Public opinion. Why, public opinion in the slave states is slavery, is it not? Public opinion in the slave states has delivered the slaves over to the gentle mercies of their masters. Public opinion has made the laws and denied the slaves legislative protection. Public opinion has knotted the lash, heated the branding iron, loaded the rifle, and shielded the murderer. Public opinion threatens the abolitionist with death, if he venture to the south, and drags him with a rope about his middle in broad, unblushing noon through the first city in the east. Public opinion has, within a few years, burned a slave alive at a slow fire in the city of St. Louis, and public opinion has to this day maintained upon the bench that estimable judge who charged the jury, impaneled them to try his murderers, that the most horrid deeds was an act of public opinion, and being so must not be punished by the laws the public sentiment has made. Public opinion hailed this doctrine with a howl of wild applause, and set the prisoners free to walk the city, men of mark and influence and station as they had been before. Public opinion. What class of men have an immense preponderance over the rest of the community in their power of representing public opinion in the legislature? The slave-owners. They send from their twelve states one hundred members while the fourteen free states, with a free population nearly double, return but a hundred and forty-two. Before whom do the presidential candidates bow down the most humbly, on whom do they fawn the most fondly, and for whose taste do they cater the most assiduously in their servile protestations? The slave-owners always. Public Opinion here the public opinion of the free South is expressed by its own members in the House of Representatives at Washington. I have a great respect for the chair, quoth North Carolina. I have a great respect for the chair as an officer of the House, and a great respect for him personally. Nothing but that respect prevents me from rushing to the table and tearing that petition which has just been prevented for the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia to pieces. I warn the abolitionists, says South Carolina, ignorant, infuriated barbarians as they are, that if chance shall throw any of them into our hands, he may expect a felon's death. "'Let an abolitionist come within the borders of South Carolina,' cries a third, mild Carolina's colleague, "'and if we can catch him, we will try him, and notwithstanding the interference of all the governments on earth, including the federal government, we will hang him.' Public opinion has made this law. It has declared that in Washington, in that city which takes its name from the father of American liberty, any justice of the peace may bind with fetters any negro passing down the streets and thrust him into jail no offence on the black man's part is necessary 
the justice says, I choose to think this man a runaway, and locks him up. Public opinion empowers the man of law when this is done to advertise the negro in the newspapers, warning his owner to come and claim him or he will be sold to pay the jail fees. But supposing he is a free black and has no owner, it may naturally be presumed that he is set at liberty. No, he is sold to recompense his jailer. This has been done again and again and again. He has no means of proving his freedom, has no adviser, messenger, or assistance of any sort or kind, no investigation into his cases made or inquiry instituted. He, a free man, who may have served for years and bought his liberty, is thrown into jail on no process, for no crime, and on no pretense of crime, and is sold to pay the jail fees. This seems incredible even of America, but it is the law. Public opinion is deferred to in such cases as the following, which is headed in the newspapers, Interesting Law Case. An interesting case is now on trial in the Supreme Court arising out of the following facts. A gentleman residing in Maryland has allowed an aged pair of his slaves substantial, though not legal, freedom for several years. While thus living, a daughter was born to them, who grew up in the same liberty until she married a free Negro, and went with him to reside in Pennsylvania. They had several children, and lived unmolested until the original owner died, when his heir attempted to regain them, but the magistrate before whom they were brought decided that he had no jurisdiction in the case. The owner seized the women and her children in the night, and carried them to Maryland. "'Cash for Negroes! Cash for Negroes! Cash for Negroes!' is the heading of advertisements in great capitals down the long columns of the crowded journals, woodcuts of a runaway negro with manacled hands crouching beneath a bluff pursuer in top-boots, who, having caught him, grasped him by the throat, agreeably diversify the pleasant text." The leading article protests against that abominable and hellish doctrine of abolition, which is repugnant alike to every law of God and nature. The delicate mamma, who smiles her acquiescence in this sprightly writing as she reads the paper in her cool piazza, quiets her youngest child, who clings about her skirts, by promising the boy a whip to beat the little niggers with. But the negroes, little and big, are protected by public opinion." Let us try the public opinion by another test, which is important in three points of view. First, as showing how desperately timid of the public opinion slave-owners are in their delicate descriptions of fugitive slaves in widely circulated newspapers. Secondly, as showing how perfectly contented the slaves are, and how very seldom they run away. Thirdly, as exhibiting their entire freedom from scar or blemish or any mark of cruel infliction as their pictures are drawn, not by lying abolitionists, but by their own truthful masters. The following are a few specimens of the advertisements in the public papers. It is only four years since the oldest among them appeared, and others of the same nature continue to be published every day in shoals. Ran away, Negress Caroline, head on a collar with one prong turned down. Ran away, a black woman, Betsy, had an iron bar on her right leg. Ran away, the negro, Manuel, much marked with irons. Ran away, the negress, Fanny, had on an iron band about her neck. Ran away, a negro boy about twelve years old, had round his neck a chain dog collar with de Lampart engraved on it. Ran away, the negro, Hound, has a ring of iron on his left foot, also grieves his wife, leaving a ring and chain on the left leg. Ran away, a negro boy named James. Said boy was ironed when he left me. Committed to jail, a man who calls his name John. He has a clog of iron on his right foot which will weigh four or five pounds. 
Detained at the police jail, the negro wench Myra has several marks of lashing and has irons on her feet. Ran away, a negro woman and two children. A few days before she went off, I burnt her with a hot iron on the left side of her face. I tried to make the letter M. Ran away, a negro man named Henry, his left eye out, some scars from a dirk on and under his left arm, and much scarred with the whip. One hundred dollars reward for a negro fellow, Pompey, forty years old. He is branded on the left jaw. Committed to jail, a negro man, has no toes on the left foot. Ran away, a negro woman named Rachel, has lost all her toes except the large one. Ran away, Sam. He was shot a short time since through the hand, and has several shots in his left arm and side. Ran away, my negro man, Dennis. Said negro has been shot in the left arm between the shoulder and elbow, which has paralyzed the left hand. Ran away, my negro man named Simon. He has been shot badly in his back and right arm. Ran away, a negro named Arthur. Has a considerable scar across his breast and each arm, made by a knife, loves to talk much of the goodness of God. Twenty-five dollars reward for my man Isaac. He has a scar on his forehead, caused by a blow, and one on his back, made by a shot from a pistol. Run away, a negro girl called Mary. Has a small scar over her eye, a good many teeth missing. The letter A is branded on her cheek and forehead. Ran away, Negro Ben. Has a scar on his right hand, his thumb and forefinger being injured by being shot last fall. A part of the bone came out. He has also one or two large scars on his back and hips. Detained at the jail, a mulatto named Tom. Has a scar on the right cheek and appears to have been burned with powder on the face. Ran away, a negro man named Ned. Three of his fingers are drawn into the palm of his hand by a cut. Has a scar on the back of his neck, nearly half round, done by a knife. Was committed to jail, a negro man. Says his name is Josiah. His back very much scarred by the whip, and branded on the thigh and hips in three or four places. Thus, J.M. The rim of his right ear has been bit or cut off. Fifty dollars reward for my fellow Edward. He has a scar on the corner of his mouth, two cuts on and under his arm, and the letter E on his arm. Ran away, Negro boy Ellie. Has a scar on one of his arms from the bite of a dog. Ran away from the plantation of James Surgit, the following Negroes. Randall has one ear cropped, Bob has lost one eye, Kentucky Tom has one jaw broken. Ran away, Anthony, one of his ears cut off, and his left hand cut with an axe. Fifty dollars reward for the negro Jim Blake. Has a piece cut out of each ear, and the middle finger of the left hand cut off to the second joint. Ran away a negro woman named Maria. Has a scar on one side of her cheek by a cut. Some scars on her back. Ran away the mulatto wench Mary. Has a cut on the left arm, a scar on the left shoulder, and two upper teeth missing. I should say, perhaps, an explanation of this latter piece of description, that among the other blessings which public opinion secures to the negroes is the common practice of violently punching out their teeth, to make them wear iron collars by day and night, and to worry them with dogs, are practices almost too ordinary to deserve mention. Ran away, my man Fountain, has holes in his ears, a scar on the right side of his forehead, has been shot in the hind part of his legs, 
and is marked on the back with the whip. Two hundred and fifty dollars reward for my negro man Jim. He is much marked with shot in his right thigh. The shot entered on the outside, halfway between the hip and knee joints. Brought to jail, John, left ear cropped. Taken up, a negro man. Is very much scarred about the face and body, and has the left ear bit off. Ran away, a black girl named Mary. Has a scar on her cheek, and the end of one of her toes cut off. Ran away, my mulatto woman, Judy. She has had her right arm broke. Ran away, my negro man, Levi. His left hand has been burnt, and I think the end of his forefinger is off. Ran away, a negro man named Washington. Has lost a part of his middle finger, and the end of his little finger. Twenty-five dollars reward for my man John. The tip of his nose is bit off. Twenty-five dollars reward for the negro slave Sally. Walks as though crippled in the back. Ran away, Joe Dennis. Has a small notch in one of his ears. Ran away, Negro boy Jack. Has a small crop out of his left ear. Ran away, a Negro man named Ivory. Has a small piece cut out of the top of each ear. While upon the subject of ears, I may observe that a distinguished abolitionist in New York once received a Negro's ear, which had been cut off close to the head, in a general post letter. It was forwarded by the free and independent gentleman who had caused it to be amputated, with a polite request that he would place the specimen in his collection. I could enlarge this catalogue with broken arms and broken legs and gnashed flesh and missing teeth and lacerated backs and bites of dogs and brands of red-hot irons innumerable, but as my readers will be sufficiently sickened and repelled already, I will turn to another branch of the subject. These advertisements, of which a similar collection may be made for every year and month and week and day, and which are coolly read in families as things of course, and as a part of the current news and small talk, will serve to show how very much the slaves profit by public opinion, and how tender it is in their behalf. But it may be worth while to inquire how the slave-owners, and the class of society to which great numbers of them belong, defer to public opinion in their conduct, not to their slaves, but to each other, how they are accustomed to restrain their passions, what their bearing is among themselves, whether they are fierce or gentle, whether their social customs be brutal, sanguinary, and violent, or bear the impress of civilization and refinement. That we may have no partial evidence from abolitionists in this inquiry either, I will once more turn to their own newspapers, and I will confine myself this time to a selection from paragraphs which appeared from day to day during my visit to America, and which refer to occurrences happening while I was there. The italics in these extracts, as in the foregoing, are my own. These cases did not all occur, it will be seen, in territory actually belonging to legalized slave states, though most, and those of the very worst among them, did, as their counterparts constantly do. But the position of the scenes of action in reference to places immediately at hand where slavery is the law, and the strong resemblance between that class of outrages and the rest, lead to the just presumption that the character of the parties concerned was formed in slave districts and brutalized by slave customs. Horrible Tragedy by a ship from the Southport Telegraph, Wisconsin, we learn that the Honorable Charles C. P. Arnold, member of the Council for Brown County, was shot dead on the floor of the Council Chamber by James R. Vineyard, member from Grant County. The affair grew out of a nomination for Sheriff of Grant County. Mr. E. S. Baker was nominated and supported by Mr. Arnold. The nomination was opposed by Vineyard, who wanted the appointment to vest in his own brother. 
In the course of debate the deceased made some statements which Vineyard pronounced false, and made use of violent and insulting language, dealing largely in personalities, to which Mr. A. made no reply. After the adjournment Mr. A. stepped up to Vineyard and requested him to retract, which he refused to do, repeating the offensive words. Mr. Arndt then made a blow at Vineyard, who stepped back a pace, drew a pistol, and shot him dead. The issue appears to have been provoked on the part by Vineyard, who was determined at all hazards to defeat the appointment of Baker, and who himself defeated, turned his ire and revenge upon the unfortunate Arndt. THE WISCONSIN TRAGEDY Public indignation runs high in the territory of Wisconsin in relation to the murder of C. C. P. Arndt in the Legislative Hall of the Territory. Meetings have been held in different counties in Washington, denouncing the practice of secretly bearing arms in the legislative chambers of the country. We have seen the account of the expulsion of James R. Vineyard, the perpetrator of the bloody deed, and are amazed to hear that after this expulsion by those who saw Vineyard kill Mr. Arndt in the presence of his aged father, who was on a visit to see his son, little dreaming that he was to witness his murder, Judge Dunn has discharged Vineyard on bail. The miners' free press speaks in terms of merited rebuke at the outrage upon the feelings of the people of Wisconsin. Vineyard was within arm's length of Mr. Arndt when he took such deadly aim at him that he never spoke. Vineyard might at pleasure, being so near, have only wounded him, but he chose to kill him. Murder. By a letter in a St. Louis paper of the 4th, we notice a terrible outrage at Burlington, Iowa. A Mr. Bridgman, having had a difficulty with a citizen of the place, Mr. Ross, a brother-in-law of the latter, provided himself with one of Colt's revolving pistols, met Mr. B. in the street, and discharged the contents of five of the barrels at him, each shot taking effect. Mr. B., though horribly wounded and dying, returned the fire and killed Ross on the spot. Terrible Death of Robert Potter From the Caddo Gazette of the Twelfth Instant, we learn of the frightful death of Colonel Robert Potter. He was beset in his house by an enemy named Rose. He sprang from his coach, seized his gun, in his nightclothes, rushed from the house. For about two hundred yards his speed seemed to defy his pursuers, but getting entangled in a thicket he was captured. Rose told him that he intended to act a generous part, and give him a chance for his life. He then told Potter he might run, and should not be interrupted till he reached a certain distance. Potter started at the word of command and before a gun was fired he had reached the lake. His first impulse was to jump into the water and dive for it, which he did. Rose was close behind him, and formed his men on the bank ready to shoot him as he rose. In a few seconds he came up to breathe, and scarce had his head reached the surface of the water when it was completely riddled with the shot of their guns, and he sunk to rise no more. Murder in Arkansas we understand that a severe rencontre came off a few days since in the Seneca Nation between Mr. Luce, the sub-agent of the mixed band of the Senecas, Quapaw, and the Shawnees, and Mr. James Gillespie, of the mercantile firm of Thomas G. Allenson and Company, of Maysville, Benton County, Arkansas, in which the latter was slain with a bowie knife. Some difficulty had for some time existed between the parties, it is said that Major Gillespie brought on the attack with a cane. A severe conflict ensued, during which two pistols were fired by Gillespie and one by Luce. Luce then stabbed Gillespie with one of those never-failing weapons, a bowie knife. The death of Major G. is much regretted, as he was a liberal-minded and energetic man. Since the above was in type, we have learned that Major Allison has stated to some of our citizens in town that Mr. Luce gave the first blow. 
We forbear to give any particulars, as the matter will be the subject of judicial investigation. Foul deed. The steamer Thames, just from Missouri River, brought us a handbill offering a reward of five hundred dollars for the person who assassinated Lilburn W. Baggs, late governor of this state, at Independence, on the night of the sixth instant. Governor Baggs, it is stated in written memorandum, was not dead but mortally wounded. Since the above was written, we received a note from the clerk of the Thames giving the following particulars. Governor Beggs was shot by some villain on Friday, sixth instant, in the evening, while sitting in a room in his own house in Independence. His son, a boy, hearing a report, ran into the room and found the governor sitting in his chair with his jaw fallen down and his head leaning back. On discovering the injury done to his father, he gave the alarm. Foot-tracks were found in the garden below the window, and a pistol picked up supposed to have been overloaded and thrown from the hand of the scoundrel who fired it. Three buckshots of a heavy load took effect, one going through his mouth, one into the brain, and another probably in or near the brain, all going to the back part of the neck and head. The governor was still alive on the morning of the 7th, but no hopes for his recovery by his friends, and but slight hopes for his physicians. A man was suspected, and the sheriff most probably has possession of him by this time. The pistol was one of a pair stolen some days previous from a baker in Independence, and the legal authorities have the description of the other. Recontra. An unfortunate affair took place on Friday evening at Chatras Street, in which one of our most respectable citizens received a dangerous wound from a poignard in the abdomen. From the B. New Orleans of yesterday, we learn the following particulars. It appears that an article was published in the French side of the paper on Monday last, containing some strictures on the artillery battalion for firing their guns on Sunday morning, in answer to those for the Ontario and Woodbury, and thereby much alarm was caused to the families of those persons who were out all night preserving the peace of the city. Major C. Galley, commander of the battalion, resenting this, called at the office and demanded the author's name, that of Mr. P. Arpin, was given to him, who was absent at the time. Some angry words then passed with one of the proprietors, and a challenge followed. The friends of both parties tried to arrange the affair, but failed to do so. On Friday evening, about seven o'clock, Major Galley met Mr. P. Arpin in Chatteris Street and accosted him. "'Are you Mr. Arpin?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Then I have to tell you that you are a—' applying an appropriate epithet. "'I shall remind you of your words, sir.' but I have said I would break my cane on your shoulders. I know it, but I have not yet received the blow. At these words, Major Galley, having a cane in his hands, struck Mr. Arpin across the face, and the latter drew a poniard from his pocket and stabbed Major Galley in the abdomen. Fears are entertained that the wound will be mortal. We understand that Mr. Arpin has given security for his appearance at the criminal court to answer the charge. A Fray in Mississippi on the twenty-seventh, in an affray near Carthage, Leak County, Mississippi, between James Cottingham and John Wilburn, the latter was shot by the former, and so horribly wounded that there was no hope of his recovery. On the second instant, there was an affray at Carthage between A. C. Sharkey and George Goff, in which the latter was shot and thought mortally wounded. Sharkey delivered himself up to the authorities, but changed his mind and escaped. Personal Encounter an encounter took place in Sparta a few days since between the barkeeper of an hotel and a man named Bury. 
It appears that Bury had become somewhat noisy, and that the barkeeper, determined to preserve order, had threatened to shoot Bury, whereupon Bury drew a pistol and shot the barkeeper down. He was not dead at the last accounts, but slight hopes were entertained of his recovery. Duel the clerk of the steamboat tribune informs us that another duel was fought on tuesday last by mr robbins a bank officer in vicksburg and mr fall the editor of the vicksburg sentinel according to the arrangement the parties had six pistols each which after the word fire they were to discharge as fast as they pleased fall fired two pistols without effect mr robbins first shot took effect in fall's thigh who fell and was unable to continue the combat Affray in Clark County. An unfortunate affray occurred in Clark County, Missouri, near Waterloo, on Tuesday, the 19th ultimate, which originated in settling the partnership concerns of Messrs. McCain and McAllister, who had been engaged in the business of distilling and resulting in the death of the latter, who was shot down by Mr. McCain because of his attempts to take possession of seven barrels of whiskey, the property of McCain, which had been knocked off to McAllister at a sheriff's sale at one dollar per barrel. McCain immediately fled, and at the latest dates have not been taken. This unfortunate affray caused considerable excitement in the neighborhood, as both the parties were men with large families depending on them and stood well in the community. I will quote but one more paragraph, which by reason of its monstrous absurdity may be a relief to these atrocious deeds. Affair of Honor we have just heard the particulars of a meeting which took place on Six Mile Island on Tuesday between two young bloods of our city, Samuel Thurston, aged fifteen, and William Hine, aged thirteen years. They were attended by young gentlemen of the same age. The weapons used on the occasion were a couple of Dixon's best rifles, the distance thirty yards. They took one fire, without any damage being sustained by either party, except the ball of Thurston's gun passing through the crown of Hines' hat. Through the intercession of the Board of Honour, the challenge was withdrawn, and the difference amicably adjusted. If the reader will picture to himself the kind of Board of Honour which amicably adjusted the difference between these two little boys, who in any other part of the world would have been amicably adjusted on two porters' backs and soundly flogged with birchen rods, he will be possessed, no doubt, with as strong a sense of its ludicrous character as that which sets me laughing whenever its image rises up before me. Now I appeal to every human mind, imbued with the commonest of common sense and the commonest of common humanity, to all dispassionate reasoning creatures of any shade of opinion, and ask with these revolting evidences of the state of society which exists in and about the slave districts of America before them, can they have a doubt of the real condition of the slave, or can they for a moment make a compromise between the institution or any of its flagrant, fearful features, and their own just consciences? Will they say, of any tale of cruelty and horror, however aggravated in detail, that it is improbable, when they can turn to the public prints and running, read such signs as these laid before them by the men who rule the slaves, in their own acts and under their own hands? Do we not know that the worst deformity and ugliness of slavery are at once the cause and the effect of the reckless license taken by these freeborn outlaws?
Do we not know that the man who has been born and bred among its wrongs, who has seen in his childhood husbands obliged at the word of command to flog their wives, women indecently compelled to hold up their own garments that men may lay the heavier stripes upon their legs, driven and harried by brutal overseers in their time of travail, and becoming mothers on the field of toil, under the very lash itself, who has read in youth, and seen his virgin sisters read, descriptions of runaway men and women and their disfigured persons, which could not be published elsewhere, of so much stock upon a farm or at a show of beasts. Do we not know that that man, whenever his wrath is kindled up, will be a brutal savage? Do we not know that as he is a coward in his domestic life, stalking among his shrinking men and women slaves, armed with his heavy whip, so he will be a coward out of doors, and carrying coward's weapons hidden in his breast, will shoot men down and stab them when he quarrels? And if our reason did not teach us this and much beyond, if we were such idiots as to close our eyes to that fine mode of training which rears up such men, should we not know that they who among their equals stab and pistol in the legislative halls, and in the counting-house, and on the market-place, and in all the elsewhere peaceful pursuits of life, must be to their dependents, even though they were free servants, so many merciless and unrelenting tyrants? what shall we declaim against the ignorant peasantry of ireland and mince the matter when these american taskmasters are in question shall we cry shame on the brutality of those who hamstring cattle and spare the lights of freedom upon earth who notch the ears of men and women cut pleasant posies and the shrinking flesh learn to write with pens of red-hot iron on the human face rack their poetic fancies for liveries of mutilation which their slaves shall wear for life and carry to the grave breaking living limbs as did the soldiery who mocked and slew the saviour of the world and set defenceless creatures up for targets shall we whimper over legends of the tortures practised on each other by the pagan indians and smile upon the cruelties of christian men shall we so long as these things last exult above the scattered remnants of that race and triumph in the white enjoyment of their possessions rather for me restore the forest and the indian village in lieu of stars and stripes let some poor feather flutter in the breeze replace the streets and squares by wigwams and though the death-song of a hundred haughty warriors fill the air it will be music to the shriek of one unhappy slave on one theme which is commonly before our eyes and in respect of which our national character is changing fast let the plain truth be spoken, and let us not, like dastards, beat about the bush by hinting at the Spaniard and the fierce Italian. When knives are drawn by Englishmen in conflict, let it be said and known, we owe this change to Republican slavery. These are the weapons of freedom. With sharp points and edges such as these, liberty in America hews and hacks her slave, or, failing that pursuit, her sons devote them to a better use and turn them on each other. End of chapter 17